I invite you to flip over to the book of Revelation uh, with me. We're going to pick up in the fifth church in, in these seven letters, if you will, to these different churches. I plan to probably take a little pause next week being uh, Palm Sunday. At least that's the plan, but God may want to have other plans. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, if it goes the way I'm thinking, I may take a pause on this series for the next two weeks and then wrap it up after Easter. But we'll see. Today, nonetheless, though, we're going to look together at the fifth church, which is a church by the name of Sardis. And some of these churches I've tried to label uh, according to what God has to say. And this one, this one gets a label that's not very attractive. Sardis is the dead church. That may sound kind of like an oxymoron, but believe it or not, there are churches that are dead. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but they, they are out there. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me one final time this morning? We're going to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would add your blessing to it. May you increase and I decrease as we give you praise today in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I was getting this message ready today, it just kind of struck me. That, you know, we have we have spent some time now looking at these churches. I've tried to give you the historical background so that you better understand uh, who John was speaking to and dealing with in that day and culture. And also try to make application to it for us today, which is how the Bible works. It is an ancient book written to people that lived long ago, but it's a living book, meaning that it has application to everyone who will open its pages and read it. And so that is always the job of any preacher and teacher is to try to give a historical and accurate context, but also make application to today. But I got to thinking about this, you know, a lot of these churches that we've read about have received some pretty stern rebukes. And yet for all these churches, they're only a generation old. Think about that. Most of these churches were begun by the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys so we're, even if you take a late date of Revelation in the mid AD 95 or so, and Paul plants these churches, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s AD, we're only talking a few decades that these churches have been successful and in most cases have taken a turn for the worse. And I just got to thinking, man, you know, it doesn't take long for the enemy to get a foothold and cause all kinds of problems. He doesn't need centuries and centuries. He just needs a little bit of time and a little bit of deceitfulness and a little bit of false doctrine. And there we go. And they get themselves in a mess and it can happen to the best of churches. So when we think about this, you know, we're 2000 years removed. But these weren't ancient churches when these letters were being written. They were still pretty new congregations. Probably some of the original generation were still living when these churches were founded. So just something to think about, something that God kind of pressed on my heart. 
uh, as we as we start here, we need to guard what we have. We need to guard and be careful to keep making sure that we are being Christ-centered and biblical in what we do and not allow any divisiveness or deceitfulness to creep in and cause problems in the church. So when it comes to Sardis, the city itself, the, the city had a rich past. And when I say that, I, I mean that very literally. Uh, if you have ever studied American history, you know the gold rush in California and out west brought many settlers out that way. Well, same thing happened in Sardis. There was rumors that gold was there, and they were more than rumors. There was gold there. And so many people moved to that area to mine for gold with the hope of, of getting rich. And so Sardis was known as a very wealthy city. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at a, at a, at a city called Pergamum. Pergamum was the one, if you remember, I showed you a picture that it sat up on this, this steep hill. But the hill was, as most hills are, you could approach it from any angle. Uh, Sardis also sat on top of a hill, but it was more like a cliff. So there wasn't many paths to get to Sardis. There was one road, and it was a windy, steep. You, you had to be a pretty good climber to even get into this city. And so it, it was very fortified. Uh, and because of that, I'll share with you in a minute why that supposed fortification led to their downfall. Another thing about Sardis that's kind of interesting, and have you ever heard of a guy named Aesop, Aesop's Fables? That is where he was born. And so it's a city that was known for him and those stories that maybe you were read uh, to when you were kids. It was a city that also was a place where they developed minting coins. So one of the first cities that had gold and silver coins minted took place in Sardis. Again, speaking to their wealth. But they sat on top of this cliff and they felt like nobody could get to them, that they were safe. And so because of that ease, that comfort, if you will, two times for sure in their history, the guards fell asleep and allowed the Greeks to twice scale up in the cover of darkness up the side of this steep mountain and invade the city and overtake it because the guards had fallen asleep and let down the guard uh, and let down their watch. rather. So as we read those verses, you see Christ is speaking to them in terms that they would have definitely understood about being asleep and wake up because their sleepiness had caused them to be overthrown several times already in their history, once by Alexander and another time by a guy named Antiochus uh, in their history. So by the time we get to the New Testament, Rome is obviously controlling the world now, and Sardis is a shell of its former self. It's not anything like it used to be. It's still a city, uh, but not a prosperous city like it had once been. And so the thing about Sardis is by the time John is writing, they are living off yesterday's manner. They are existing about who they used to be, not who they are today. Their reputation was strong, but their present activity was not. Okay? So with that in mind, let's look at what the Lord says to this church and, and try to make some application. So just like every letter, Jesus is introducing himself and he's speaking to the angel. We've talked about this every week, whether or not that's a literal angel. Maybe God appoints an angel to each church, a guardian angel. That's certainly possible. The biblical language allows for that. But it also in the Greek can just mean a messenger. So were there literal messengers that went to each of these churches? Was it the pastor of these churches? We can't be dogmatic, but nonetheless, Jesus is speaking to a real church and he's giving them a real message here. And he says to them, the words of him, so here's his introduction this week as to who Christ is, 
who he is presenting himself as, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. That's been a difficult passage over the years for folks to try to properly interpret. Probably the most common interpretation for that comes from Isaiah 11, verse 2. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it speaks about the differing ministries that the Holy Spirit has. It says there, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So in the Bible, seven speaks of completeness. And many folks believe that, that this representation of Jesus, this idea that him who has the seven spirits of God speaks about the completeness of of his ministry, the fullness of his ministry. And I believe that there's some worth to that, uh, to that interpretation, and then it probably uh, is correct to some degree. But I'll take you back a few weeks to when we talked about the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, I, I, I shared with you that during this time period, again, if we're talking about AD 95 in that window, uh, the emperor's name was Domitian. And as many of the emperors in that time had done, they had set themselves up to be worshipped. They considered themselves divine. Domitian took it a step further. Most of these Caesars waited until they were dead to be worshipped as God. Domitian asked for worship while he was still alive. And he believed so much that he was a God that he had a coin minted. And I don't know if you remember, if you were with us, the picture that I showed of that coin. But there were seven stars in that picture of the coin. And I believe that to some degree, Jesus is making a cultural, a current event reference, if you will, in this letter to say, hey, Domitian may think he's God. Domitian may think that he rules over the empire of the world, but I am the creator of all this. I created Domitian. I created these kingdoms. I am the only one worthy of worship. I am Yahweh, and I alone deserve the praise that this man believes he is worthy of getting. So I believe that there is probably some, some validity to that idea as well. But nonetheless, Jesus is presenting himself as the one who is in complete control of all things. He is the one that walks among the seven stars. We had talked about that back in Revelation 1.20. He walks among these churches. He sees what's going on. He cares about what's going on with his people. He is not a distant, detached God that just doesn't worry about what we're doing down here. He's very involved in our life. That's why we speak about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's more than just an idea. He is more than just a story. He is the one true God that desires to commune with us, that desires for us to know him intimately. And what a great privilege it is to be able through Christ Jesus to be reconciled to God and have that personal relationship where he cares for us deeply and intimately. He cares about these churches, and he says so. And he tells them that, that he is active and involved in everything that's going on with them. And he says to them there, uh, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Man, I don't know. That's, that's probably one of the worst pronouncements, I think, that a church could receive. And notice he uses that word. You have the reputation of being alive. There was a lot of stuff that they had done that caused people to talk about them. The good old days, we might call them. A lot of times we reflect on the good old days. And there's nothing wrong with going back and thinking about the good old days. I miss some of the good old days. But you can't live off the good old days. You can't stay in the good old days. And so he says to them, you know, you have this reputation, but you are dead. And can I say this? Without the Holy Spirit actively involved in any church... It is a dead church. And I believe that's one of the things that we see absent today in so many churches 
is that there is no reliance on the Holy Spirit. Everything is done according to man's planning and man's programming and everything is man-centered. And if we get ourselves in the way so much, the Holy Spirit is not going to operate. You know, I think it's good to plan. I think it's good to prepare. But I think it's good to allow the Spirit of God to ultimately minister the way that he sees fit. We have an order of service. If you open up your bulletin, you see exactly what we plan to try to do. We didn't plan for Nathan to speak. The Lord laid something on his heart and he shared it. And I would, I would never say, well, Nathan, sorry, you're not in the bulletin this week. We'll get you scheduled next week to share that. We have got to allow the Holy Spirit to move. We want to do things decently and in order, but we also want to know that the Spirit is present with us as believers and he is the one that dictates the worship of our service through the word of God. And so I think many churches today are dead because they're not relying on the Holy Spirit. Now, I know, again, I've said it before, Baptists get nervous when we talk about the Holy Spirit too much because, you know, there's a lot of charismatic ideas that maybe we don't agree with. But the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. He's a big part of the ministry, uh, and he's a big part of our life as believers. And so we shouldn't exclude him as a red-headed stepchild, right? And so I think it's important that we, we include in our teachings the Father, Son, and yes, the Holy Spirit, for sure. So they have this reputation. They're, they're alive, but they are dead. And I'll say this. Looks can be deceiving, guys. You have to be careful. Don't base your judgments on just what you can see. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And many people are deceived because what looks good is actually rotten fruit. You've got to be careful. I was reading, as I was putting this lesson together, uh, I was reading one, one writer gave an illustration about the stars that we see. And some of these stars are so far away that it takes the light from these stars decades to get to us. So do you realize that when we have a clear sky at night and we look up there at the sky, we may see light from a star that's already burned out and dead? You may be seeing something that looks bright and shining in the sky because the light is still traveling to get to us, but that thing died years ago. That's the truth about many churches. There are churches today that are meeting for worship, but they're dead. And that's a sad, sad reality. And that doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It's a gradual process, but a lot of times it's a process that could have been avoided if people would have just chosen to do it God's way Amen. rather than their way. And, and here's another thing that I think is kind of scary for the church in Sardis and, and also for us in any church that evaluates themselves. If you remember, as we looked at these first four churches before this, there was stuff going on with them. Like they were being persecuted. There were folks teaching false doctrine. Last week we talked about Jezebel and that spirit. There's no mention of that here. If you read through that, I don't see anything about heresy and persecution and suffering. What it appears to me is that the church in Sardis, they were just their own worst enemy. They were the ones that were simply complacent and apathetic. They had an opportunity. There were false gods and goddesses worshipped here. Matter of fact, when the archaeologists dug this up, they found a temple to a god called Artemis, which was kind of like a mother god. It's just kind of a collection of all the gods, and they just worshipped her as a little bit of everything. And right next to it was a church, a Christian church that had met probably a little bit later on than when this was written, but nonetheless, right across the street. And so they had a great opportunity to be an effective witness, but they were a dead church. They weren't doing what they should be doing. They weren't taking advantage of the opportunities that were put before them. 
Now, I won't give you statistics because they vary depending on where you look, but suffice it to say, every year a lot of churches close their doors. And in the last few years, it's gotten more and more. Uh, just because times have gotten hard, people have fallen away. The commitment, we're living in a generation now where I was reading the other day, there's a group called the nuns, not the nuns like the Catholic nuns, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who have no religious affiliation. And it's at its highest point that it's ever been in the history of this country. It's a little over 20% now of folks polled, identify with no religious affiliation. And then there's another group of folks that identify as believers, but don't identify with any specific local church. So when you put those two numbers together, the 20% there and the however many percent of the other, you're talking about a significant portion of our culture today that either has no connection at all with any kind of religion or that claims to have a relationship with Jesus but doesn't, for whatever reason, worship regularly in a, in a New Testament church. And so that's problematic, but that's the, that's the reality that we're facing in our world today. And I think it's important we understand that when we go out to minister to know what we're dealing with. It's no longer a fact where we can go out and just assume that people have a general knowledge about the Bible. We have got to get back to the basics. We have got to treat people as though they've never, ever heard anything out of this book. We can't assume that they know Jesus or anything about Jesus. We can't assume that they understand it's by grace through faith. We can't understand. They can't understand these big words like justification and sanctification. We got to go back to the ABCs Amen. with people. And treat them as though they've never heard this message because many of them haven't. Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean that the people you're talking to did. They don't have any connection to this, guys. And so, in a sense, that's kind of good for, to me because over the years of my ministry, I've learned that a lot of times people that have spent a lot of time in church, I have to spend years deconstructing a lot of the bad stuff that they've learned or the unbiblical stuff before I can even get into teaching the right stuff. At least with lost persons never heard it before, you got a blind canvas. You can start off and right off the bat make sure that you're giving them the true gospel. So in that sense, I think it's it's a good thing. But it, it is sad to see how far our country has departed, if you will, from having any kind of relationship at all with any kind of religion, especially the Christian faith. So let me give you a couple of things to think about because it is a reality that churches are meeting this morning. And uh, even though there's people in there and they're singing songs and preaching the word, for whatever reason, they have died. The church is dead or, or it's, it's on life support, if nothing else. So let me give you a couple of things to think about uh, why that can happen. Number one, I believe dying churches live continually in the past. That's what happened in the church in Sardis. They had a reputation. They had done some good things. And there are many churches, and I hate to say it, but in our local Southern Baptist Association, there are at least two dozen churches. And the majority of those churches are struggling to keep their doors open. Now, I'm not saying they're all bad churches because they're struggling. Some churches are just struggling. They're really good churches. But a lot of times, the reason that they struggle is because they've decided that the past is all they want to think about and all they want to focus on, and they miss the present opportunities. Again, we cannot stay gridlocked in the past. There's a lot of things about the past that I love, a lot of things I wish we could return to, some things we probably should return to. But we can't allow that to keep us from moving forward. We can't allow that... To, to keep us from ministering to this next generation. We have got to figure out how to bridge generational gaps. Every generation matters. I don't think a church should say, well, when you reach the 65 plateau, we're going to set you out to pasture and bring in the young ones. We're going to do everything to just cater to the young people. I don't think that's wise. Yeah. I don't think that's wise at all. Every generation has value. 
Every generation has gifts. Every generation has talents. You may reach a point physically where you can't do the things you used to do. You may reach a point in your life where you're not mature enough and have the experience enough to do other things. But together we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's the goal. We work together with our eyes on Jesus and we help one another in our weaknesses and we encourage one another in our strengths. That's a good New Testament living church. We can't live in the past. Number one. Here's another one. A dying church worries more about pleasing man than pleasing God. Again, you can find churches today that are packed to the hilt, that are full. But if you spend a little time there, you would see that the focus is man and not God. And that is a dead church, no matter how many people fill the pews on Sundays. They're in a dangerous position when everything that they do is robbing the worship of God to heap praise on man. That's a dangerous place. We don't gather here today to worship the pastor or anyone else in this room. We come together collectively because we've been washed in the blood and because Jesus saved us from hell and because we understand who he is. We come together today because we get to gather and we get to worship because he is worthy. He is worthy. That's why. Absolutely. He's worthy of praise every day. So we can't worry about pleasing man. We've got to keep our focus on pleasing God or we will become a dying church. Here's another one. A dying church elevates tradition over the mission to reach the world with the gospel. A good catalyst that I've seen over the years for this is if you try to do something different in your church, if you suggest an idea, and again, we can't do everything that every person suggests. There's just not enough resources and not enough volunteers not enough time. So sometimes people will come and say, Pastor, I think we should do this. And I would love to say, I think we should too. But sometimes it's just not feasible, or at least not right now it's not feasible. I'm not saying that we just shoot everything down. But here's the dangerous thing. Anytime somebody suggests something new, if the answer you get is, well, we've never done that before. If that's always the answer, there's a disconnect. Yes, it is. Because there's always going to be something that we've never done before. But that's something that we've never done before could be the next thing that reaches the lost, right? Again, we've got to keep it inside of the biblical context. We can't just go out and say, well, let's try this, even though it's sinful and the word condemns it. Let's go out and do that. Many churches are doing those types of things just to get people in. And I in no way, shape, or form would advocate that. But I think that we have to understand that to minister to a, another generation, we have got to willfully and intentionally do some things different. We have got to be open to that at least. But again, we don't want to neglect the previous generation and keep our eyes so focused on just reaching who we want to get next that we forget about the ones that God has already sent here. There's got to be a balance. And that's my last point. A dying church focus is totally inward when the balance has got to be inward and outward. There is a whole world out there, guys, that's dying lost without Jesus Christ. Before we leave here today, there were people that have stepped into eternity that will spend forever separated from God. That's the reality of this thing. And yet, while we know that there's a mission field out there and we want to do everything possible to be engaged in that mission field, there's folks in here that need minister to too. And the Bible definitely talks about the fact that we are to serve one another and love we are to minister to the needs in here. So we can't get so focused on what's out there that we forget to care for the folks that are in here. There's got to be a balance. There's got to be evangelism. There's got to be discipleship. There's got to be an intentional way of going outside the walls, but there's got to be a way for caring for folks inside the walls too. A, cha a living, healthy church will be balanced. A dying church will focus primarily on just 
keeping this little group together in their holy huddle. And that's not a good idea because the church will die. So with that being said, he gives them a warning and, and a warning that we can heed too. Uh, in verse two, he says to them, wake up, wake up. Literally, that is be watchful or chase away your sleep. Sardis would have understood that. It's because they fell asleep that twice their city was invaded and literally wiped out because they had fallen asleep. It cost them something and it will cost us something. If we fall asleep on our watch, there will be a price to pay. I know some of you served in the military and the last thing you probably wanted to do when it was your watch was be caught dozing off. You probably would have gotten a little trouble for that. Pete shaking his head. Yeah. And so you can understand. It's a serious thing. When it's your duty to watch, you better have your eyes open and be doing just that. We talked about in Sunday school. The Lord could come back at any moment. We don't know the exact day or the hour, but Loretta mentioned it. We talked about it all the time. The signs are all there. We can look for the signs. We can see the season that we're in and know that perhaps before this message is over, he could return. And we need to have our eyes open. As believers, rejoicing, expectant, glad for our labors will end here and we will go on to our heavenly home. But on the other sense, with some urgency, with some sadness, because there's people that we love that aren't ready and we want to see them go with us. And that ought to spur us on to do everything we can to tell them about Jesus and to live that life out in front of them as best we can. We fall short every day, but we want to try to do our best to do that. And so he says, wake up, chase away sleep. First Peter 5, 8 gives kind of the similar language to us as believers. It says there in first Peter 5, 8, be sober minded, be watchful. Same idea, same Greek word. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's busy. His kingdom is busy. We've talked about this in this series over and over and over again. Guys, we are in a spiritual war. There is no time now to lay down and go to sleep. There is no time now to be AWOL. We have got to realize the battle we are in. We've got to realize that the enemy wants to take your kids, your family, your spouse to hell. He wants to lead as many away as he can. And we have got to get in the fight and share the good news. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And people need to hear that. People need to hear the name of Jesus. And it needs to come from our lips. We are the ones with the good news. His church is the people of God that he has left here and trusted that with. We have got to get back in this fight. We have got to wake up. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. I don't want to turn this into a political thing or just an American thing, but I do want to say this. It saddens me that America has lost its godly heritage. Amen. It saddens me. It saddens me because I'm a dad. And it saddens me that the world that my daughter is growing up in is not the world. My world was imperfect. My mom's world was imperfect. Her mom's. I'm not saying that America was ever perfect. But I'm saying that over the years, the decline has caused us to not be as great of a nation as we used to be. And what made us great was not capitalism, was not Republicans, was not Democrats. It was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what made us great. And any nation that has its eyes on the Lord Jesus and obeys his word will be blessed of God. But any nation who forsakes him will see his hand removed and will face the judgment of God. And my friends, we are there. And that saddens me. It saddens me because I'm ready to go. I want to go in some sense. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of ugliness. I'm ready to go home and be with the Lord. 
But I'll be honest with you, I'm a little selfish too. I'd like to, I'd like to live long enough to see my daughter, you know, have a family and do things like that. I, I would. But it, it's troubling that our world is not the same, our country is not the same. And I'm not expecting, you know, things to necessarily get better, but I think the church can get better. I think the church can do better. Amen. I'm not expecting the world to all of a sudden be converted and we just, you know, become like the millennial kingdom before the actual millennial kingdom happens. But I think the church has fallen asleep for too long. And we can be better. We, not just believers in this room and online, but believers all over the world. We, collectively, can do better. And we can do better by being awake, by being watchful, by taking this thing serious as much as possible for living for Jesus, for prioritizing Him in the things that matter to Him. We can't live on the past. And so many churches and even believers say, well, it was a good run. It was a good run. The church did good. I did good. I served for a lot of years. And now I'm just going to, I'm just going to hang things up, sit back and just wait for the Lord to come and take me home. Listen, I've heard older folks say that and, and, it, and, it, and it hurts to hear that. Because I've, I've never read in the Bible where there's a retirement plan in God's kingdom. When you get older, listen, I get it. You might say, man, I've served 50 years in the church and I'm just tired. I need a break. And, and that, that's, that's a, you may do that. You may need a little break. You may need to shift gears to something else. You may not physically be able to do those things. But please don't just hang it up and say, well, I'm going to pass the torch on and let somebody else do all the work. We need you. We need everybody. If, if God's called you and gifted you and you're still here, he's got a purpose for you. That's right. So again, I go back to the idea that a church can't just focus on reaching the young people and forget the old and the church can't just live on yesterday's manna and say, well, we're going to do everything like we used to and forget the next generation. You have to strike a balance to be healthy and vibrant and living. And together, together, if Christ is the focus, it shouldn't matter what our ages are. Shouldn't matter black, white, male, female, 95 or 5. If Jesus is the focus, we ought to be able to figure out how to put him in front of us and come together and see things happen for him. That ought to be the focus. And I think that we can do that. And I think we have to some degree done well with that. But I always think we can do better with that, myself included. And so that's a goal that I think we should strive for. Putting Jesus first. Amen. Allowing Jesus to be the center of everything. Not just worship on Sunday. In your home, in your job, in your schools. Everywhere you go, strive to put Jesus first. Make that the goal every day. If you fall short, try again. But keep trying. He calls this church. He says, you need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die because your works are not complete. Verse 3, remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come. I think it's so important that each week the Lord calls these churches to repentance. I think it's a blessing. We talk about grace and we define what grace is. And a lot of times we just talk about grace in the sense of salvation. It certainly is. None of us would be saved today were it not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What good news, what grace. But have you ever thought about this as a believer it is grace that God continues to sanctify you. It's grace that God continues to convict your heart over sin. It's grace that God allows you to repent. It's a scary place when you get to the point where sin is no longer a bother to you. It's a scary place when you get to a point 
Where the Spirit's voice is no longer heard in your ear. Where your heart is so hard and you've quenched Him and turned Him away so many times that you don't even remember the last time you've repented. That's a bad place to be. And so if you hear that word repent today, it's funny, I've heard several people talk to me this week about things that maybe I've preached on or things that I've posted. And they said, you know, at first I was mad. That's always the response. That's my response too. Anytime the Holy Spirit, anytime the word of God starts poking around in areas that, that aren't, you know, where they ought to be in my life, I get mad. I don't like it. I don't like it. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't like getting stabbed with that two-edged sword in areas of my life I need to work on. So you get a little puffed up. You say, well, good grief, I'm doing good enough. How much more do you want from me? Or, well, look at so-and-so. Look at Brian. I, 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 look what happened. He ain't doing right either. Don't bother him for a while. You know, and we start getting mad about stuff. But if you'll take a little time and allow the Holy Spirit to work on you and you'll meditate and think on it, You'll lay aside that anger eventually and, and hopefully be replaced with gratitude. Say, man, I'm thank you, Lord. This is a problem in my life. And you could have left me there. You could have left me in that place. But you love me too much and you showed me too much grace to do that. It's a blessing. It's not comfortable to be under conviction. It's not, it's not comfortable to come up here and, and bear your heart and pray and say, church, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with whatever. But man, what a freedom there is in that. When you shine that light into the dark places and welcome that light in, your light will shine. Your life will shine. But that's hard sometimes. So he calls this church to repent. He calls us to repent. He calls sinners to repent. That simply means you turn, have a change of mind, and a change of heart. It leads to a change of action. And then finally in verses 4 through 6, I'll just kind of lump these together. He gives a promise. He gives a promise to them if they're faithful it says they will walk with him in white. What a glorious promise that he gives to us. Stop and think about this. After we're saved, we still are a mess. We don't get it right every day. We don't get it right every hour, usually. And yet you think about it. The Bible declares us as already being in the kingdom of heaven. It says we are, we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It talks about the fact that we are saints. That we are holy. That we are forgiven. It doesn't say you might be or you could be. As a believer you already have those promises. How? Because of Christ. Because of your union with him. It's Jesus in your place. God doesn't see you any longer. He doesn't see your list of sins. He sees the blood-stained banner of Jesus. And the clear white robes that Jesus has put you in. That's the promise, guys. We should rejoice in the fact that our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That he has washed us clean. They will walk with him. We as his children will walk with him in white. In Revelation 19, when Christ comes back with the armies of God arrayed in white. Who is that? Us. us. That's us. That's you if you're a believer. If you're not, you're not coming down with the Lord Jesus and his army. You're the one he's coming after. You're the one that got left behind. That's, right. That's a scary place to stand in judgment without Jesus. He says that your name will be in the book of life. I'm going to write your name in the book of life and I'll never blot it out. I know some of my brethren 
believe you can lose your salvation? That's a mistake here in this verse then. If, if he wrote my name in the book and then later he got his eraser out and took it out, then there's a problem. But I'm glad that the Word of God teaches that Jesus writes with a pen that doesn't have an eraser. He writes it with his own blood. And when he writes it down, it's eternal. We have eternal life. Not temporary life, not consequential life. And he says, I'm going to call your name. Think about that. One of these days, you're going to hear from the lips of Jesus Christ your name spoken to the Father and the angels. Can you imagine that? We're going to get up there and look him in the face and he's going to say, George, this is George Brown. I saved him on such and such a day. Can you imagine that? What that will be like? I can't even fathom that. Cannot even fathom that. So let me wrap up. I don't want to keep you long, but I do want to, I do want to say this. I want to make a little application with this. There is a reward to being faithful, but here's the application. You have to differentiate on this because this is important. There's a difference, guys, between being in a season of dryness and being dead. Sometimes it's hard. You may ask yourself, I don't know if I'm just dry or if I'm dead, but I believe you'll know the difference. But I want to warn you. You may be here today and you may say, well, I'm pretty sure I'm not dead. I'm pretty sure I still love the Lord. I'm pretty sure I still want to serve Him. I'm, just, I'm in a funny place, funny time. Don't quite know where I'm at, where I'm going, what I'm supposed to be doing. That kind of thing. And you're just kind of dry. We all get there. But that's not a place you want to stay. You don't want to stay in that place. And so Hebrews 2.1 says this. It says, we must pay attention. We must pay pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard. Listen to this last part. Lest we drift away from it. If you go out to the creek and the water just barely moving and you throw something in there, slowly that thing's going to drift away from you. You didn't move. It did. And if you're not intentional about being with Christ every day in fellowship and service and obedience, he didn't go anywhere but you will find a distance between you and him. And that will lead to a dryness in your life. I've shared this quote many times over the years. One of my favorite quotes by a guy named D.A. Carson. Here's a portion of it, I think, on the screen, but I will read the full quote. Listen to what he says. This is exactly what Hebrews 2.1 is talking about. People do not drift towards holiness. You'll never drift towards holiness. You'll drift away from God. You'll drift away from the church. You'll drift away from the word of God, but you won't just unintentionally grow closer to any of that. People do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. Say that word, effort. It takes work, guys. It's not just going to happen. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He says we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and to convince ourselves we have been liberated. You will not drift towards holiness. It has got to be intentional. If you're here today and you are dry, you are going to have to intentionally, willfully, today, Make it a point if the Spirit is dealing with you to say, today I hear your voice, today this ends, today God, here I am, rekindle the fire, relight my wood, I want to serve you, I want to follow you, and I'm available to you. 
That's what it's going to take. Intentionally saying, no more excuses, no more games. I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to clear my calendar. I'm going to be there when I'm needed. I'm going to serve where I'm able. And I'm going to lead my family and lead my home the way that God wants me to. You've got to make that. And if you blow it, get up again next day and say, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try my best to get it right today. Don't let the devil say, well, you made a promise and then you didn't do it. So you might as well give up and quit. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. You remind him who you are, who you belong to, and that you are loved with an everlasting love. You get up and do it again. Get up and serve him again. Here's the other one. You may have spent all your life in church. I promise I'm done after this. You may have spent all your life in church. You may know church inside and out. And, and that was my story, really. I grew up Catholic. If somebody asked me what faith you belong to, I'd say I'm Catholic. I didn't know anything about Catholics. I didn't know anything about Catholic Church, and I didn't care to. It was just a place that I associated with because mom made me go sometimes. So I labeled myself with that label. And maybe you're here today and, and you've given yourself that label. I'm a Christian. I'm a Baptist. Because this is what you know. This is what you do. Mom makes you come on Sunday. You don't want to be here, but you're here. You feel obligated to Georgia Melody, so you show up to see stuff, but you'd rather not be here. And that can be true of adults. You feel bad. You feel guilty if you don't go to church. Well, I'd rather slept in today, but then I know my week will be bad if I stayed home late in the bed. God would punish me, so I better go to church. You shouldn't go to church because of that. That's the wrong reason. And that shows that there's something wrong in your heart. We get to go to church. Yeah. We get to do these things. And I hope that there's the desire there that we want to do those things. One writer said, we tend to be passionate about the things that we invest our time and our energy in. We tend to be passionate about people that we get to know and take the time to invest in. We have got to be intentional about growing closer together as the body of Christ. We have got to make an effort to get together with these believers in this room and hear their burdens and hear their praises and, and pray with them and love them and care for them beyond just the prayer list in your bulletin. Get to know them personally. That's so important. I want to close. I want to invite the praise team to come on up today or the ones that are singing at least. And I want you to think about, I want you to think about these two quotes that I'm going to give you. Let me just give you this one and we'll wrap up. By a guy named Dennis Lyle. He says, tragically, many churches are dead. They're like the rotting carcass of Lazarus. These church bodies have the foul stench of death upon them. They have the appearance of life, but they are in actuality dead. He says their sanctuary is a morgue with a steeple. They are congregations of corpses. They have undertakers for ushers and bombers for elders and morticians for ministers. Their pastor graduated from the cemetery. The choir master is the local coroner. He says they sing embalmed in Gilead. And at the rapture, they will be the first churches taken. For the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be a dead church. And I'm thankful today from what I can see we're not. But again, Sardis wasn't either. We don't want to settle in. Guys, the, a lot of you folks have been with us since K. Russo was formed. We started out in a borrowed building. We started out with no idea where God was going to ultimately land us. And he's provided everything. Amen. And it's easy for us to look and say, well, we've arrived. We got our building. We got our land. We got a congregation. We got money in the bank. Let's take our foot off the gas and just enjoy all the blessings. 
and slowly and slowly we will lose life. We have got to look and say this is just the beginning. God has given us a foundation in Christ. He's given us a place to meet. Now let's do the work. Amen. Let's really do the work, guys.